Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your sentient pumpkin, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. We are back to normal episodes. I hope you like the first ever live stream experiment. I don't normally do any type of call to action in the intro, but hey, sometimes you have to ask your audience to leave you a rating on iTunes. I'd be over the moon if any of y'all left a rating. As long as you're using an iPhone and your iOS is up to date, it takes no time to leave a rating through the vanilla Apple podcast app. I know that a lot of you probably haven't updated your iPhone in years. I know I haven't. Enough of me being a needy Nelly. This episode features masked maniacs, big sharks, and shambling Osbies. Get it? Osbies. Aussie zombies. Anyway, follow me into the tall grass as we go over some films. Ah, oh, crap. We shouldn't have come in here. Number one, The Furies 2019, directed by Tony DeKino. Two girls, Kayla and Maddie, are kidnapped. Kayla wakes up in a box in a forest. Once out of the box, she meets some other girls. A masked man appears and kills one of the girls. Kayla tries to run away but finds a perimeter has been set up that she can't cross. Kayla sees one masked man fight another. Kayla accidentally kills a girl that sneaks up on her. Kayla realizes someone implanted something behind all of the girls' eyes. It's revealed that the girls, the beauties, are paired up with the masked killers, the beasts. If a beast beauty dies, the beast's head explodes. Kayla and a girl named Rose go to look for Maddie. They find Maddie. Rose kills Maddie in order to kill Maddie's beast, which horrifies Kayla. Kayla rips out her own eye, which allows her to leave the perimeter. The people in charge think Kayla is dead and deem Rose the winner. Kayla finds a man connected to the game and tortures him for info. The beasts, Kayla, and Rose are the killers. Gore and creepy masked killers? I'm in there. Shutter exclusive? I'm cautiously in there. Don't judge a movie by its Shudder exclusivity, I know, I know, but most Shudder exclusives have been... iffy? Here's a list of dope Shudder exclusives. Prevenge. Mayhem. Um... That's it, really. Does the Furies join that very short list of Shudder exclusives I adore? Close but no cigar, the Furies. Where did that phrase come from? Allegedly, cigars used to be fair prizes. There's no proof, though. The Furies has some great elements. The gore is practically done and looks amazing. You have a face taken off by an axe, arms ripped off, head explosions. 
The gore is definitely a highlight of the Furies. Another highlight is the Beast masks. Almost all of the Beast characters' masks look incredible. The standout mask is donned by the Beast whose mask is actually more of a full skin suit that was too small for the Beast. It's disturbing and perfect. Characters wearing other people's skin isn't something new, but the skin suit in the Furies is grotesque and great. Something I dug is the premise of the Furies. You have this game where crazed killers are each given a different person they have to protect. This premise isn't fully explored, but it is unique for this kind of horror slasher battle royale movie. Without that twist, this movie would basically be that Predators movie with old slasher dudes instead of Predators. It's weird that the beasts are killed instantly if their beauty dies, but not vice versa. A big problem I had with the Furies is the drab location. The woods get old fast, and the few decrepit shacks and barns that are in the play area aren't all that interesting either. In one of the barns, there is a giant wrench on the wall. The giant wrench isn't used by any of the girls for self-defense. I'm not sure why, given how perfect the wrench would have been as a weapon. Instead of raising the wrench in the air and proclaiming, I am Dexter, or beasts, get out of my laboratory, a girl instead decides to wield one of the saddest wooden boards I've ever seen as her weapon of choice. That board wasn't even a 2x4. The acting is fine. No one really wowed me. Rose's acting is weird, but there's exposition about her being a forced shut-in whose mom wouldn't let her leave the house, which explains her oddness. The intro credits are fantastic and were definitely a factor in me raising my expectations a little too high. The score is generic and ill-fitting in a lot of spots. There are long, boring stretches with no tension or action, which really hurt the pacing. The dull moments scream padding to reach feature length. With more scenery variety, a tighter script, and less drab colors, The Furies would definitely have been a strong recommendation. The movie even starts with a beauty in a vibrant green jumpsuit having her intestines removed. That's one thing that could have easily been better. More colorful costumes. The masks the beasts wear are fantastic and unique, but they are all wearing the same dull prison-style uniforms. Give me some color. If you are a fan of practical gore and neat masks above all else, check out The Furies. Number 2, The Meg, 2018, directed by John Turtletob. Some scientists figure out that the Mariana Trench is even deeper than originally thought. They take a sub down through a cloudy layer that was thought to be the bottom. Once there, they are attacked by something. Jason Statham rescues all but one of the scientists, who's killed when a megalodon bites the submarine. An opening was made in the layer which allowed the shark to leave the trench. The scientists try to capture the shark, but end up having to kill it. An even bigger megalodon then shows up and kills more scientists. The shark starts eating people on a crowded beach. Jason Statham then cuts open the shark with a busted up submarine and exits the sub to shove a long metal rod into the shark's eye to kill it. Scientists, bad helicopter pilots, and a megalodon are the killers. I didn't mention that some news helicopters pop up to try and cover the megalodon only to crash into each other for no reason. 
The scientists went into the shark's house and murdered it for trying to protect its home. The shark is safe from the killer list, here due to castle law. Small big shark doesn't kill any innocent people. Big big shark does kill some innocent beachgoers, which puts Megalodon on the list. There was also some sea creature on sea creature murder, but that's nature, baby. Josh, why did you watch The Meg? Everyone knows it's a garbage movie. Jason Statham even voiced his concerns that the movie was watered down. I don't know, listeners. I wanted to turn off my brain? Let's start things off with a simple question. Is there any reason for you to watch The Meg of your own volition? Nope. Unless you're into giant sharks that are completely made out of CGI. If you have a fetish for large computer animated sea creatures, go ahead and watch The Meg. Otherwise, stay out of the water. How's the acting? Well, the best actor of the bunch is Jason Statham. I think that's all I need to say about the acting. Rain Wilson is also in the movie, but he doesn't really do anything besides act stupid and get eaten. I only found one thing that happened in the movie humorous. I didn't laugh at any of the dialogue that were some of the worst jokes I've ever heard. The only time I let out a giggle is when the first submarine to go into the deepest part of the Mariana Trench runs into a squid. I'm not even sure it was meant to be comedic, but that's the only part that made me chuckle. You see the squid bounce off the windshield as a thud sound plays and it sprays some ink due to the impact. How's the action? Stupid. Now, I didn't expect the action to not be stupid, but I did think that the action in a movie about a megalodon would at least be more entertaining. The Meg is almost two hours, and the sharks are absent for a lot of that runtime. I was surprised to see blood in the movie. Both sharks have bloody deaths, and there is also a lot of blood when two whales die. Jason Statham single-handedly killing a megalodon is fun to see, but that one scene is definitely not worth sitting through the rest of the movie. If you have any interest in the Meg, I recommend trying to pull up Statham vs. Megalodon on YouTube instead of subjecting yourself to this made-for-Chinese audience's film. The Meg was obviously made for the Chinese viewers first and foremost. That's probably why there isn't a lot of human gore and all of the jokes are easily translated. I thought in this day and age we'd stop writing groan-inducing token roles for black actors and instead started writing strong characters for black actors to portray. Paige Kennedy plays a stereotypically written character in The Meg. I loved him in Blue Mountain State as Radon Randell. One of my favorite bits on that show was when Radon hosted a show called Dreams where he provided advice on how listeners could accomplish their dreams. I recommend looking that up on YouTube while you're searching for Statham vs. Megalodon. What was I talking about? Oh yeah, they have Kennedy's character DJ say, damn right, so what? Well, before the movie started I was joking that someone would say, this is the shark's world and we're just living in it, to which another character of African American descent would say, damn right, well, I got half of that right. There's also a joke about DJ not being able to swim. Ugh. Come on, the Meg. Come on. You came out in 2018. I pulled that exchange prediction from Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and that came out in 2019. Ugh. 
Does LL Cool J say damn right in regards to the shark in Deep Blue Sea? Anyway, The Meg is a barely entertaining blockbuster cash grab for Chinese audiences. Don't bother with The Meg. The studio should have let Eli Roth make his R-rated version instead. Number 3, Uncanny Annie, 2019, directed by Paul Davis. On Halloween night, a group of friends play Uncanny Annie, a board game none of them remember purchasing. One of their friends, Tony, died last Halloween. The game starts off innocent, but quickly becomes sinister. Uncanny Annie is some kind of board game monster who can only be defeated by finishing the game. People start dying. Eventually, it's revealed that one of the friends, Michael, is responsible for Tony's death. Two girls are left to finish the game, Wendy and Eve. Uncanny Annie says she'll bring back everyone in exchange for Eve. Wendy has to kill her though. Wendy tries to kill Uncanny Annie instead. Uncanny Annie can't be killed, so all the friends die. Uncanny Annie, her cronies, and Michael are the killers. This is the first Hulu Into the Dark movie, now shortened to Hulark, of year two. Before watching it, I looked up the director, and to my horror, he's the same guy that directed The Body. What the hell, Hulark? I gave you kudos for giving up-and-coming filmmakers a chance to make a feature. Paul Davis already got a chance, and he made a dookie in his pantaloons. Uncanny Annie is way better than The Body. That doesn't mean much, given how horrendously awful The Body is. Jumanji Annie, I mean, Uncanny Annie, has a decent premise. Spooky game that makes awful things happen. A character in the movie name drops Jumanji, which I appreciated. Unfortunately, no one says, You die in the game, you die for real. Uncanny Annie has a great premise that you can do almost anything with. What we get is the bare minimum. There are some basic rules to the game Uncanny Annie. The goal of the game is to spell out Annie within an hour. You draw a card and do what it says to get a letter. If you fail to do what the card says or refuse, you have to draw a mischief card that has a random negative effect. Those are the main rules that are laid out. One last rule is that if you break the rules, Annie will break them too. For the first friend group death of the movie, the group journeys outside the house only to find themselves stuck in the game box. Out in the game box, one of the friends is killed by a pointy tentacle thing. What the hell, Annie? There was no rule about leaving the house. As a board gamer, I have to call shenanigans. No one had tried to cheat yet either, so that's a wag of the finger for Annie. I hate when the rules are broken. Since the only interesting aspects of the movie are the game, I'll quickly cover some other things. Whoever wrote the dialogue has never talked to an actual human being. One girl references Monty Python, which a guy responds with, You like Monty Python? Someone else likes this super obscure media I do. I wonder if she also likes a small indie band called The Smiths. The movie starts off with some characters playing D&D obnoxiously. Characters playing D&D in movies and TV never feels genuine. There's barely any gore besides a great throat slash from my favorite character in the movie, the prankster. He's one of Annie's cronies. He's supposed to be scary, but he's just a goofy looking old dude. Prankster is awesome. 
He tricks one of the girls into glassing another, which ends up being unintentionally hilarious. Prankster is a complete goofball that doesn't do anything that remotely inspires fear until the blood-spurting throat slash he bestows on one of the girls. That's the only instance of decent gore. Another death I want to call out specifically for being painfully stupid is one in which a character is holding a door shut by putting their back to the door. Horror aficionados know where this is going. Death is behind the door, scythe and all. Death stabs the character through the door. When will people learn not to put their backs up against doors when trying to stop someone with a stabby object from entering a room? The friend group knows that Uncanny Annie is serious business after one of their friends dies early on. They've literally all seen death, the figure. A character draws a card that says one of the girls has to kiss him, and she's like, No way! No! I can't kiss him! No! Y'all serious? These are characters that are all above 21. People are dying if the cards aren't completed. If that card said you gotta lick someone's butthole, you best believe any normal group of people would be like, spread them cheeks, let's go. Dignity means nothing when you're dead. One character draws a card that makes them answer some questions truthfully, which ends up revealing that she has a secret that would hurt someone she loves. Ignore that this plot point was stolen from that Truth or Dare movie. It's really cool that instead of having the secret revealed, Uncanny Annie just lets everyone know the girl has a secret. The secret ends up being that she made out with or hooked up with Michael, who has a girlfriend, and that she was there when Michael accidentally killed Tony. That's heavy. I would have preferred if the secret wasn't revealed though. I thought it was more interesting to have the loved one know that she was keeping a secret from him. Michael ends up drawing the same card, which this time wants to know the full secret, but instead of fessing up to the makeout sesh and Tony manslaughter, he bails, which ends up getting him, and if we are looking at the big picture, everyone else killed. If Michael would have told the truth, Annie would have been spelt out in full, and the friends would have won the game. That secret was not worth everyone's lives, Mikey. Sure, everyone would have hated you after the reveal, but at least you'd all be alive. The first card drawn leads to everyone saying what their biggest fear is. Wendy's biggest fear is being surprised. Fast forward to the end of the movie. Wendy drills Annie's box to try and destroy the little demon. Uh, get your mind out of the gutter, perverts. Wendy literally uses a handheld power tool to drill into Annie's board game's black box where all the game pieces are stored. Quick side note, Wendy was supposed to kill Eve with that drill. That's the worst thing to kill a bud with. Well, it's technically not the worst, but a drill is a pretty bad murder weapon when you're trying to put your friend down as quickly and painlessly as possible. Back on track, Wendy, whose biggest fear is surprises, drills into Annie's box, which looks exactly like Harry Potter stabbing Tom Riddle's diary, black goop, and all. Wendy then wakes up back in the house, alone, thinking she's defeated Annie. Here's how the movie should have ended. Wendy actually did defeat Annie. All her friends are back, but they are hiding in the house to throw Wendy a surprise Halloween party. The friends jump out to surprise Wendy, she freaks out and falls backwards onto something pointy like a statue and dies. There's then a quick giggle 
or something that lets you know Annie hasn't actually been defeated. That's how you end Uncanny Annie the right way. My ending is leagues better than Annie popping up to kill Wendy at the end. I'm glad Annie won. Her and her pals are the best characters. I like how Annie is presented. There are cracking sounds when she moves her neck and she can teleport around. Annie's great. I would love to see this concept again where the group of friends are actually hardcore board gamers. One last thing before ending this overly long section. A guy draws a card that says stab death before he stabs you. I really wanted the movie to go full on camp and have death appear dancing and snapping as he made his way towards the card puller, a la West Side Story. That doesn't happen, but death would totally be one of the jets. Get it? He's Jet Black. Uncanny Annie isn't a good movie, but it has some interesting ideas with spotty execution. All of the human friend group characters are insufferable dinguses, but Annie and her crew are delightful. Uncanny Annie is a great movie to watch while cracking jokes with a group of friends that love board games. Number 4 in the Tall Grass 2019 directed by Vincenzo Natale. Becky and her brother Cal enter some tall grass after they hear a kid calling for help. Once in the tall grass, they are unable to leave. The kid in the grass is named Tobin and he's stuck in there with his mom Natalie, dad Ross, and dog. Travis, Becky's ex-boyfriend that got her pregnant, comes looking for Becky who's been missing for some time. Travis enters the tall grass. Time and space is different in the grass. In the grass, there's a rock. Ross touched the rock and it drove him crazy. Ross starts killing everyone. It's revealed that he has killed everyone multiple times. Travis kills Ross, touches the rock, and is able to send Tobin out of the grass to the moment before Becky and Cal enter. Tobin stops them from going in. Ross and Cal are the killers. Did I forget to mention an evil version of Cal feeds Becky's newborn baby to Becky? Oops. Pet warning, Tobin's dog Freddy dies. He then comes back though. The tall grass is a strange place. At one point in the movie, Tobin is shown touching the rock. If you touch the rock, you can't leave the grass. So, how is Travis able to send Tobin out of the grass? In which timeline is Tobin rock toucher Tobin? If Tobin stops Becky and Cal from entering the grass, Travis would never go looking for them. Wouldn't that save him from being stuck in the grass? If Travis never went into the grass, he'd never accidentally lure in Tobin and his family. Yeah, that happens. Are we dealing with parallel universes instead of time loops? My head hurts. We see multiple dead cows at one point. Oh wait, it's just different loops. The first Tobin we meet is Rock Toucher Tobin, but he must have died sometime before the family re-entered the grass. That still doesn't explain what happens to Travis unless... Unless there are now two Tobins out in the world. The Tobin that escaped the tall grass to warn the new loop Becky and Cal to stay out, and the new loop Tobin that never went in since Rock Toucher Travis broke the grass looping. New Loop Travis would never go looking for New Loop Becky and Cal, therefore New Loop Tobin family would never come to the aid of a New Loop Travis since he'd never get stuck in the grass. That's the only way all of this tall grass madness makes sense. If it was obvious that, at the end of the movie, 
Two Tobins now exist outside of the tall grass with the new loop copies of everyone else who will no longer enter the tall grass. I apologize for wasting your time here. Throughout the beginning of In the Tall Grass, which I'll shorten to Tall Grass from now on, I was wondering what was up with Tobin. His delivery was so weird and unnatural, it was then revealed that he really enjoyed putting his hand on a big creepy rock. After learning that Tobin dug the rock a little too much, I thought, oh, he purposefully lured in Becky and Cal. Tobin is an evil little devil. Later on, Travis accidentally lures a fresh, never-entered-the-grass Tobin into the tall grass. Thing is, this Tobin, who had never touched the spooky stone, also had horrible and unnatural line delivery. It was in that moment that I realized Will Bowie Jr., who plays Tobin, is just an awful actor. Hey, I'm sorry, but normally I'll put up with a kid actor. Will Bowie Jr. is so bad in the tall grass that I have to bring up his trash acting. He also looks weird. I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm bringing that up because it's confusing. You have this weird looking unnatural kid. The audience is going to think something is up with this oddball. Turns out it's just a strange looking kid that can't act. Were there no other kids available? To be fair to Will Bowie Jr., most of the acting in Tall Grass isn't spectacular. Patrick Wilson of Conjuring fame is pretty great as the fanatical grass dad. I'm normally not much of a fan of his, but kudos here. Only Harrison Gilbertson, who plays Travis, acts like a normal person who is stuck in some sort of rule-bending, inescapable grass. Sure, Laisla de Oliveira who plays Becky ends up freaking out eventually, but that's mostly because she is being attacked and ends up the center of a weird grass person ritual. She didn't seem to care much about just being stuck in the grass indefinitely. The gore in this movie is mostly CGI, but looks fine. There isn't much gore. The goriest moment is when Ross crushes Natalie's head with his bare hands. That kill really raised the stakes and set off the whole game of cat and mouse between Ross and everyone else. Besides the acting, another thing I have some issues with when it comes to tall grass is the lighting. During the night scenes, it's almost impossible to see what's going on. I originally tried to watch tall grass on my phone during a flight, but had to give up and wait till I could watch it on a TV since I couldn't tell what was happening in the night scenes. Should you check out Netflix's latest Stephen King adaptation, In the Tall Grass? I'd say go for it. It's far from the most amazing thing they've ever released, but Tall Grass is entertaining and has a cool concept. Number 5, Little Monsters, 1989, directed by Richard Greenberg. Fred Savage finds an unlikely friend in monster Howie Mandel. Wait, that's not right. Little Monsters, 2019, directed by Abe Forsyth. A man-child named Dave volunteers to be a chaperone for his nephew Felix's class trip in an attempt to woo Felix's attractive teacher, Audrey. The trip is rudely interrupted by a zombie outbreak. Audrey keeps the class calm and gets them to a safe location. Dave tries to find an extraction vehicle for the class, 
but ends up surrounded by zombies. Felix drives a tractor to save his uncle. The class boards the tractor and escape the zombies, who are then blown up by the U.S. military. Dave, who's finally become an adult, gains Audrey's affection. The zombies are the killers. I could probably put the U.S. military on that list too, since they're the reason the whole outbreak happens. A zombie starring Academy Award winner and hot A-lister Lupita Nyong'o was only in theaters for one night, then dumped directly onto Hulu? That has disaster written all over it. Little Monsters, one of the worst possible titles you can choose for your movie since all it does is make anyone who reads it think of the already joked about 1989 movie, is an okay zombity. Is it amazing? As a whole? Nope. Some parts are great though. Lupita is fantastic. Australian actor Alexander England plays Dave and is solid and funny once you get past the literal minutes of him and his soon-to-be ex-girlfriend shouting at each other which starts off the movie. There's a lot of padding to get this movie to a proper feature length. Oh, it's set in Australia. The rest of the acting is solid barring one big ol' why. Josh Gad plays McGoogle, your favorite Highland frog. Wait, no, he plays McGiggle who has a puppet friend, Frogsy. My mistake. If you don't know who McGoogle is, watch Max Keeble's big move. It holds up and is hilarious. Josh Gad, who's probably most famous for portraying the little talking snowman in Frozen, plays the edgy, raunchy, unfunny McGiggle in Little Monsters. Think Steve from Blue's Clues. Someone thought, wouldn't it be funny if a children's TV show host was stuck in the middle of a zombie outbreak and was violent and cussed a lot? I mean, I guess that could be funny if someone with any comedic talent was chosen for the role. Were there no Australian comedians available for the part? I know Jermaine Clement is a Kiwi, but someone like him would have been perfect for the role. They'd still need to tone down the whole edgy potty mouth thing due to it simply not landing, but if the actor was decent, I could see the role getting a few Mick giggles at the very least. The best scene involving Josh Gad is the part where Lupita shanks him in the gut with a broken ceramic bunny and threatens to kill him for the greater good if he doesn't shape up. Yeah, Lupita's character is a badass. She easily steals the show by threatening a children's TV show host, dispatching zombies with a shovel, and cheerfully taking care of the kids. I was bummed to see Lupita end up with Dave at the end, but hey, trauma bonding I guess. Little Monsters doesn't do anything all that fresh when it comes to a zombity. Exposition is provided through a zombie soldier's walkie talkie, which I thought was neat. When the army shows up and asks why they're there, I appreciated the answer to that question being, zombies again. The gore in the movie and makeup effects for the zombies is all well done. A lot of comedic beats land. The overall pacing suffers due to some unnecessary lulls. Some information could have been showcased in a more interesting manner. A zany flashback regarding Audrey's revealed celebrity stalking would have been much more interesting than a static shot of the conversation. Little Monsters is... Definitely worth checking out if you're looking for a new horror comedy. 
It's not going to end up as one of the greats, but it's still a good time. Just ignore the painfully unfunny Josh Gad. Oh, one last thing. Don't expect a lot of zombie kid shenanigans. There are barely any, and the shenanigans that involve zombie kids also involve Josh Gad. If you are looking for a movie about zombie kids, watch Cooties. Elijah Wood, Rain Wilson, Allison Pill, and Jack McBrayer have to deal with a bunch of zombie children. Honestly, I don't remember loving that movie, but it does have way more zombie kids. Number 6, Haunt, 2019, directed by Scott Beck and Brian Woods. Harper, who just broke up with her abusive boyfriend, accompanies her friends to a haunted house. The haunted house is filled with masked killers who have freakish faces under the masks. Most of the friends are killed. Harper kills one of her friends, thinking the friend was a masked killer. Abusive ex-boyfriend shows up and is killed. Harper and a new guy she likes makes it out of the haunted house alive. Harper sets a trap for one of the killers that survived who attempts to enter her house later. The Scary Face Gang and Harper are the killers. Haunt is a movie that was barely in theaters before being thrown onto the web for rental. I had extremely low expectations for Haunt, and it surprised me. The idea isn't the most original thing in the world. Haunted house attraction where the danger is real. Hellfest and Hellhouse LLC have similar premises. There are definitely more movies in the same vein that are either slipping my mind or I haven't seen yet. I'm a fan of the fake haunted house is real thing. Compared to Hellfest and Hellhouse LLC, I had way more fun with Haunt. Haunt starts off with all the killers wearing spooky masks. Well, the masks aren't actually spooky. They are those vintage style plastic masks. After a while, the haunted house employees start removing their masks. During the first face reveal, I was like, don't take off the mask. I don't want to see some boring old dude. That'll ruin all the spookiness. Luckily enough, the faces under the masks end up being creepier than the masks themselves. The killers have a bunch of gnarly face mods that range from crazy pointy dermal piercings to insane scarification. Some of the killers even have parts of their face removed. My favorite killer, Mitch the Ghost, made his face look like a horrifying flesh ghost. Keep the mask on, Mitch. Mitch is my favorite because he just tries to help out the friends. He's not actually trying to help them, he's trying to murder. But besides the whole murder thing, he seemed like a nice guy. I prefer Mitch in the mask though because the silly ghost mask he wears is a lot more endearing than his horrifying face. When it comes to the gore, Haunt is mostly passable. There is a ton of CGI gore. Most of it looks fine even though practical effects would have been much better. The goriest scene in the movie is when Mitch removes the obnoxious dude bro character in the friend group's face with the prying end of a normal, everyday hammer. Now, I'm not the handiest of men. I wouldn't call myself a hammer expert, but I'm pretty sure there's no way you can easily rip off someone's face with a hammer. Reality aside, it made for a great disturbing gore scene. Other unrealistic things that I was more annoyed by, Love Interest shoots at a crazy face killer with a nail gun from a distance. Nail guns being used as actual guns 
is a pet peeve of mine. Harper's hands end up stuck to the floor. She rips her hands off the floor, which removes a bunch of skin from her palms, chunks of flesh. These incredibly painful wounds instantly heal and don't affect her in any way. In the beginning of Haunt, the friends have to sign waivers before entering the haunted house that state the rules and what the friends needed to do to be safe. I was hoping that people would only die when they broke the rules, but it seems like the scary face gang didn't actually care about the rules they themselves put in place. Our main character is Harper, and she's one of the dumbest protagonists of all time. Here are some examples of how dumb she is. Harper meets a new guy. He asks her if she ever had anything scary happen to her as a kid. Here a normal person would probably recount a story about when a giant grasshopper jumped on his head when he was little, causing him to be scared of insects ever since. Harper starts going on and on about how she had a good childhood until it wasn't good. She's all vague and weird about it. TMI for someone you just met, Harper. A big thing throughout the movie is that Harper had a dad that was abusive towards her mom and a boyfriend that was abusive towards her. But none of that really affects the plot. We just get a random abusive boyfriend kill, which isn't even all that satisfying. Anyway, besides being a weirdo to people she just met, Harper has a very intricate ring that was her mom's that's really special to her. She doesn't notice that her friend is wearing it. Harper ends up in a room with some messages written backwards. The messages are simple to decipher, but Harper has to use a mirror to understand what they say. She also crawls under a spooky bed to see what's under it instead of flipping it over. Other things proving Harper is dumb includes her thinking there's only one set of keys to the haunted house and that there is actually an exit at the end of the attraction that was created by sick murderers. These creepy face killers totally put an exit at the end for their victims to escape Harper. Totally. Even though Harper is dumb, I don't blame her for accidentally killing her friend. The friend was forced to wear a cloak and mask and the whole stab masked person first, ask questions later mentality makes sense given the situation. The one part in Haunt that really cements that Harper is Boo Boo the Fool is when she makes it to a hallway that has a shotgun trap. Harper sees the shotgun shoot once. After the song, Pop Goes the Weasel plays. The song plays again, and she sees the gun shoot again. A third time the song plays, and the shotgun shoots a third time. She witnesses this. The song starts playing a fourth time. Harper decides to slowly walk towards the barrel of the shotgun as the song starts again and puts her hand in front of her as Pop Goes the Weasel ends. Well, this should have resulted in Pop Goes the Harper, but out of sheer dumb luck, the shotgun was out of shells. Harper had no way of knowing this. Why wouldn't she crawl under the gun? She knew that as long as she was on the floor, it wouldn't hit her. Holy moly, Harper, you stupid idiot. Most of the friends are dum-dums. New love interest boy sees a crazy face killer with a gun and walks slowly towards him with a baseball bat. He literally brings a baseball bat to a gunfight. Love interest is also not punished for his stupidity and only gets shot in the side 
before killing the crazy face. Harper being a dumb, stupid idiot and the reality gripes do not take away from my overall enjoyment of Haunt. Hell, Harper being stupid actually added to the fun. I dug the killer's creepy faces and costumes. The production design of the haunted house is also neat. Haunt is definitely worth checking out. It's not groundbreaking, but it's a perfect entertaining movie for the Halloween season. Oh, and I forgot to mention, fan favorite crazy face killer Mitch does not meet his demise on screen. I wouldn't mind a sequel. Number 7, Spooky Shows. Wow, what an exciting section. What could this entail? Spooky Shows, I thought that was obvious. I've been watching a couple horror-ish shows that I thought I'd talk about here in the seventh section. The first one is Netflix's Haunted. It's back, baby. The first season was one of the dumbest yet somewhat entertaining shows I've ever seen, and the second season is no different. The first episode is called The Mimic. In it, a girl talks about how she hears spooky voices coming from the basement of her house. She has a boyfriend who corroborates her story. A new male roommate named Brendan moves into the house. He moves into the basement. Oh no! Watch out for the spooky voices, Brendan! Instead of spooky voices, Brendan actually sees the girl come into the basement and take off her clothes. They start making out and right before they are going to fully start going at it, the girl turns all spooky. Oh my gosh! That wasn't the girl! It was the mimic! Oh jeez! Wait a minute. I'm no rube. The girl and Brendan made up the whole story about a mimic just so the girl's boyfriend wouldn't realize the girl cheated on him. That was dumb. There was a similar episode in the first season where a girl hated her dude so much she made up a ghost that she said she was banging. Silly haunted. Your show is so dumb and fake. Then we get an episode about a gay man that was horribly tortured by a religious cult called the Worldwide Church of God. The man was sent to the New Bethany home for boys where atrocities were committed. Um, why is this real story about something absolutely heinous that happened being showcased on this platform that is goofy goofy dumb time haunted? The man's story should definitely be heard, but haunted is not the place. Haunted is where you go to tell up made-up ghost stories. At least the rest of the episodes are just silly stuff. Wait, the episode after that heavy-ass true-life conversion torture prison is about a soldier who was obviously suffering from PTSD and not seeing an actual demon? Haunted. I know conversion camps and PTSD are scary. I watch you because I want to see insanely dumb supernatural story retellings where the friends and family of the storyteller make judgmental faces during the recounting of events. Give me lighthearted ghosts, not heavy reality. Jeez. Haunted Season 2 is still fun, barring the super dark true story involving the new Bethany home for boys, which is still a really good episode. Damn, that was depressing, and the only story that I believe was 100% real. Well, besides the short part where the guy that was tortured says he saw an actual demon, that was obviously just a hallucination brought on by intense trauma and barely any part of the story anyway. The other scary show I've been watching is Light as a Feather. 
It's about a group of girls that played the game light as a feather, stiff as a board. I have never actually played that. In this version, the way the person is going to die is prophesized prior to them being lifted. Wouldn't you know it, the prophecies start coming true. It's like a really cheesy version of Final Destination that's aimed at a teenage audience. They even decided to have Instagram stars play some of the characters. Cat noticed that. I've never heard of any of these Instagram people who can't act and look completely out of place in every scene they're in. Anyway, Light as a Feather is really stupid, but it's been a fun time. I started watching it because it was a selectable show during a really long flight I was on. I thought there was only one season, but turns out there's at least two. In the first season, the main girl, McKenna, has a hot, alcoholic mom. In the second season, the hot mom disappears and is replaced by another actor. It's tragic. Looks like Hot Mom decided to be in that Shia LaBeouf movie Honey Boy instead. The best character in Light as a Feather is named Violet. She's always stirring up something and the most entertaining screen presence by far. I haven't been digging season 2 nearly as much as the first one, but it's still entertaining enough for me to continue watching. Do I recommend you stop what you're doing and watch either of these shows? No, not at all actually. You should be spending your time better than I am. If you happen to be on a long Delta flight that has those monitors on the back of the chair in front of you's headrests, maybe think about checking out Light as a Feather. That's really the only acceptable time to start the show. I should really be watching that Marianne show that's on Netflix or the new Creep show on Shudder instead. I hear they're amazing. Sometimes I just want to watch some junk food media with my brain turned off. That's the end of Blank is the Killer 56, Masked Maniacs, Big Sharks, and Shambling Osbies. October is the best month for spooky movie watching. If you dug this episode or any other, leave a rating on iTunes. Send any questions or whatever to blankisthekiller at gmail.com. I'll keep bringing it up even though no one but my dad has sent an electronic mail that way. A big thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website, allowing it to enter your minds on all podcast apps. Episode 57 will be out on November 3rd. Until then, promise not to play Uncanny Annie. Without me, I know we'd kick that board game's figurative booty.